sometimes, I, I used to ask this every week at youth group, and I would say, who's having a really good week? And I'd have them raise their hand, but I'd always follow it up with, who's having a really tough week? And the only thing I asked them was to be honest. And then I'd get to the third question, who's just having an okayest week? And that was where most of us were. Most of us, it wasn't a great week, it wasn't a terrible week, it was just somewhere in the okay. And I taught them that much of our life, thank you, Mark, is in that, we live in that okay range, and that's all right. But there are weeks that are tough, and I want you guys to be able to be honest about that. There's weeks where you just wonder, where was God? Where is God in all of this? And then there's weeks where we go and we struggle and we question our faith and we doubt reality of who God is. If he's really there, why is this going on? And I want you to know, I, I've said this many times, but for some of you that are newer, I want you to know, it's okay. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to have doubt. I think that the danger in doubt is when we give up halfway through the fight. That's when it's dangerous, is when we give up halfway through the fight. Push through don't be afraid of the doubt, but don't just sit there and rest in that either. There's something beautiful and there's something more. And though that wasn't my plan to opening today, I just felt like the Holy Spirit was telling me there's some people in here, but they're just, they've been struggling to just hold it together. It's not that you don't love God anymore. It's not that you don't, but you're just struggling to hold it together. And I want you to know God sees you right where you are. If that's you, again, I don't have any inside information. Nobody called me and tipped me off last night. But if that's where you're at, you're just holding, struggling to hold it together because life just seems overwhelming. And you want to know that God's there. You want to feel his presence. You want to feel that peace that he brings. But it just feels empty right now. Know that he sees you where you are, and he's there. He's there in your midst. And I don't know if that's for you today or not, but if it was, that's, I honest. And if you know me at all, I'm not a big, God told me that. I'm really a, hey, God gives us a brain to think, but I really believe that God wanted somebody to hear that today. So I hope that if that was for you, that you can hear that. If you've got your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 12. We started in a series last week called Underwhelmed. Somebody pointed out, did you realize this is the third time you've done a series on not being worried since you've been here in the last five years? And all I can say is this. When I write stuff, two things happen. One, I ask myself, where am I at in life? And two, what do I think our church needs to hear? And then I sit down usually somewhere between August and November and put together, I just, it's little building blocks. I just, I have a bunch of ideas and then I decide where we're going to slide them in at. And I've had people go, boy, that was right on the right timing. And then I've had people go, that seemed like it was out of left field. Well, if it's wrong, it's on me. I'm fully willing to say that. And if it hits you where you're at, then I really do believe that the Holy Spirit guides us. And I believe that the Holy Spirit guides us, and here's why I say that. Because much of this gets written six months to a year before it's ever spoken. And I can't tell you how often people say, I needed to hear that. So yes, this is apparently my third series on worry. Um, I probably am a worrier more than I should be. I like to say, no, I'm just thinking ahead. But in reality, it's, I'm trying to control things. And maybe, I'm not saying it's you. It's probably not you. It's probably the people sitting next to you. But maybe they struggle with that same thing. Maybe they struggle with worry. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 12. I'm going to start at verse 22, and here's what it says. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, 
nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, nor God, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? And if you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For these things the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms and provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That is a huge text with multiple theological implications. There is no way that I could effectively give you everything that's in that text in one single message. So what I'm going to do is pull in some other texts because that always helps clear things up. So actually I want to focus on why does Jesus say this? Last week I told you we were going to start at verse 13 and when I was reading through it I was like that is going to take up my entire message time and be even more convoluted because there's so much there. But I want you to understand, so 15, the second half of 15 is Jesus talking, and he says this, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. One's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Bono from U2 has a line in a song, and it says, I don't believe in riches, but you should see where I live. I think that sums it up well. We don't believe in money, but we always want just a little bit more. I told you a statistic recently that I had read that said the average American says they would be just fine if they had just 10% more. So whatever their income level is, they know they'd be okay if they just had 10% more. I look back to 25 years ago, and uh, I was in college, Hard to believe that this young man was in college that long ago, but I was a child genius. Um, I don't know what happened after college. But the reality is, 25 years ago, I was in college, and I remember graduating college, and I, I don't know why I'd done this, but I kept every receipt that I had paid to the college. And I added it up, my tuition, my housing, my books, and I had $32,800 in receipts. And I remember thinking how rich I would be if only I had used all that money, just saved all that money. I had $32,800 in receipts. I'll never see this much, more, this much money in the rest of my life. And I remember having this little moment where I decided to just burn them all. And I burned $32,800 worth of receipts. 
And for some reason, it felt very cathartic and very good. I look back and I think, I was so worried about what I used that I didn't really look at the knowledge I had gained, the life experiences I had, the ways that I grew and developed and became more of who God was shaping me to be. I think the same thing is true today. Whether it's our money we spend on college or our money we spend on other things, whether it's the money we spend just to live, I look at what it costs to buy a house in this area, and I'm like, wow, I don't know that my kids will ever be able to buy a house in this area. And yet I also think, there's no way I should have ever been able to buy a house in this area. We had a really nice house where we were in Iowa. Don't worry, I'm going to get back to the text, but I want to give you context. We had a really nice house where we were in Iowa, and when we moved here, I remember thinking, I'm going to have to spend $40,000 more and have half the house after I started looking at prices. We have half the house we had, and it was $40,000 more. And yet, that can't be where my treasure lies. That can't be the equivalent of my value, nor what I pour my life into. Because when that becomes my thing, when I start worrying about that, then I get my eyes off of what he wants me to see and do and become. So here's a few things the text tells us. First off, life is more than food and clothing. Life is more than where you live, the car you drive, or what you have. I've told you before, I want you to have nice things. I like nice things. I've often said, I don't want money, but I like things. And things cost money, so I guess I kind of like money. But life has to be more than that. Life has to be more than the brand I wear, the thing I have, the way I look. It can't be just keeping up with the neighbors because there's always going to be a neighbor that has more money. There's always going to be somebody that has a newer, a bigger, and a better whatever. Life can't be about that. Second thing the text teaches us is this. God takes care of the small things. God takes care of the birds. He takes care of the the grass. He takes care of these things. I'm not sure if anybody else is a bird feeder or owns a bird feeder and actually keeps it full. I have a bird feeder. I don't know why. I, I don't dislike squirrels most of the time until they get in my bird feeder. Then I consider it a personal affront. Most of the time, me and squirrels, we just have this mutual, like, you do your thing, I'll do mine. You stay over there, I'll stay over here. We, it's mutual. You can have the outdoors, and I'll take the inside until they get on my bird feeders. Then suddenly, I'm obsessed with them. My wife will say, you're obsessed with them. We have a bird feeder that hangs off a back shed. I have tried using a hose on the squirrels. I've tried throwing things at the squirrels. I've got a squirrel-proof bird feeder. Our squirrel learned to hang upside down by his back feet off of the edge of the shed and pull out things like one at a time. I'm like, all I've done is slowed him down and taught him to be a better gymnast. (laughs) But the reality is, God takes care of the small things. He cares about the birds. If God takes care of and cares about the birds, how much more does he care about us? Who can add anything to their life by worrying? That's the third thing the text wants us to ask. Can we add a moment? You're not taller because you worry about it. But by worrying, we're not adding anything to our life. We use all this time and energy 
to focus on things that are irrelevant and don't matter because we want to be in control. We want to be in control. And because of this quest to be in control, because of this thing that we're grabbing for things, we're not really adding anything of value to our life. Fourth thing it tells us in the text, if you look at verse 30, it says, God knows what you need, so why do you worry? There is a difference between worrying and planning. We're supposed to be proactive. Uh, Proverbs 20, 21 tells us, the wise man saves for the future, but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. And yet, you can't control your future. I put away a little bit each month for my retirement, and this week I looked at the stock market and said, no, this is the wrong direction. I'm doing my part. I can't control any of it. And yet, God knows. God is there and God is in control. The text also tells us this. Sell what you have. He's not talking about being in poverty or penniless. If you actually look at the context of what he's saying, he's saying, don't let your possessions control you. And the moment something controls you, you no longer own it. It owns you. Don't be owned by anything. It may not be a physical possession either. Sometimes I think we get caught up in this idea that, well, you know, there's nothing I wouldn't sell and give away to God, but what other things do we hold on to in life that he's saying, that's not yours. That's not yours. It's not selling everything for the hope it, or for the feeling it brings, but it's for the hope it provides when nothing owns us. Again, I own a car. I like my car. I don't want to give up my car. Two weeks ago, my car was in the shop for nine days, so I didn't get it back. It's kind of a hassle. We're blessed because. We do have more than one vehicle, and we were able to swap and drop each other off at work, and a couple of times I got stuck places, but in the end, it all worked out, and yet my car doesn't own me. I like it. It's useful, but it's not going to own me. Another thing the text here tells us is this. You give to what you treasure, You give to what you treasure. You want to know where your treasure really lies? Open your checkbook or look at your bank statement. See where your money goes. Look at your bank statement. See where your money goes, and you'll know what really matters to you. Mine goes far too much to bagels. But is it really about who I am in Christ? Because the beauty is, I don't expect anyone else to necessarily do what I do. That's not my job. That's between you and God. But it is my job to be faithful with what I have. And if I'm the only one doing it, that's got to be enough. And you have to know that if God's calling you to do it, he's going to make a way. If you know me at all, I'm not a big pressure person. I don't receive our offering on Sunday mornings. Somebody else does that. Because I don't ever want to be the guy who wants your money told you before, I don't want your money, I want your whole life. You can give your money to God, I want your whole life. Because I want us to be so sold out that we live not just in a way that says, well, I'll do whatever I have to do, but that's it. But I want us to live a life of generosity. 
Another thing this text tells us here is seek the kingdom of God first. This gives perspective. It's not a promise of prosperity. And I've heard it preached that if you give to God first, then you're going to get this. That's not what it's saying. It says, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things are going to be added to you. But it's not a, if you do this, then you're going to get ten times more. It's if you do this, suddenly everything else is going to come into proper perspective. When I give to God first, these things don't matter quite as much. My perspective changes, not my bank account. And too often times, we're looking to say, well, I'm going to give to God, but I better get my portion back. There's too many people that are saying, if you'll do this, then you'll get this. Do I believe God blesses us? Absolutely. But I think the American Christianity misunderstands the very concept of blessing. In the Old Testament, where it talks about blessing is not wealth. Where it talks about Abraham's blessing, it was the presence of God is what the blessing was. And we've lost that in our Western theology. If you go into places where communism went in, and yet Christianity still had this seed, and some of them lived, they never believed they were going to get out alive. What they believed is that the presence of God was going to be with them when they died. That the presence of God was going to ease their pain and bring comfort to them, even in the midst of their persecution. But because we have not been persecuted, and I'm glad, I don't want to be, please don't think I'm saying I should be, but we have not been, and so now we have to say, well, somehow the blessing of God is with us, so that means I have this material wealth. And if I get a good parking spot at the mall, I'll even hashtag blessed. (laughs) The reality is, when we seek first the kingdom of God, it's not about what I'm getting. It's about perspective I'm gaining. That all the things that are going to be added are a greater understanding. Finally, in verse 32, it tells us specifically what God wants us to have. It says, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The kingdom is referring to that place where we create other believers and we come together. That the kingdom is where God rules and reigns in our life as well as eternally. And where he says he desires to give you the kingdom, he's saying, I want to give you more than the temporary. He's not saying you shouldn't have things. He's saying, I have something greater for you. I have something more for you. Here's a few things that um, I've seen where I think the text is misused. Number one, that money is evil. It never says in scripture that money is evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. But it doesn't say money is evil. It doesn't say you shouldn't have any. It doesn't say you should be in poverty. Um, for years, pastors were taught they're supposed to live in poverty. My parents held that belief, and I don't say this because they didn't have much. My parents held that belief for the first 20 years of their ministry at least. That they believed the only way they were spiritually fulfilling what God wanted is if we lived in poverty. 
I've told stories to my son. He sometimes doesn't believe it because he goes there now and my parents do have a, a nice, large... Of course, they live in a really small town. They have a house that's really nice and large and it's probably a third the cost of mine. <laughs> but we go there and I talk to him about how we used to take all the seats. We had a 15-passenger van and we'd take all the seats out and we'd fill up. We'd go through the cornfields after they'd been picked. It's called gleaning. And we'd fill up bags, gunny sacks, full of corn. And... He said, what did you do with all the corn? And I said, you took it to the feed mill and you sold it. I've talked to him about how we used to trap and we would trap muskrat, beaver, mink, otter. And uh, sorry if you're an anti-fur person, I respect you. I haven't trapped in a few years. But we literally were doing it because we could make in a week trapping what my dad made in two months as a pastor. And so we would get up at 4.30 a.m. and we'd do it for usually a week to two weeks. And we'd go out and we'd walk a river and you're walking in the water and we'd check these traps. And I'd go two to three miles in this river and then we'd walk back on the road, back to our car. And I'd go home, get changed and go to school. My dad would take a shower and go to work because we were going to do what it took to be in ministry. Because that's what God had called him to do. And when God called him, he called his whole family. That's what he would always say. No, God called our whole family. So there was times where I would resent this and I would feel like this isn't what I want. And yet I look back and it's mostly good memories. It's fun. Times I remember being cold, but it wasn't bad. And you guys probably weren't, you may not have even been in ministry. You may have had to do those things just to keep your family going. I remember getting hired to clean out calf pens when I was 12 years old. I don't know that I wanted to, but I liked the idea of money, and it was my own money. I got three bucks an hour for shoveling poo. And you put down fresh bedding, and two weeks later, you go back and you do it again. But see, there's something greater than that. God doesn't tell us that money is evil. However, according to what I read recently, Forbes magazine, 65% of all millionaires in the U.S. say they wish they had a little bit more. Rich is always just 10% more than what you own, 10% more than what you have just a little bit more and we'd be okay. But when I read that 65% of all millionaires wish they had a little more, I was like, oh, how self... And then I thought, well, but now that I'm planning for my retirement, I don't know how much is enough. I don't, I don't want to come up short. I don't want to live a really good 25 years of retirement, but then the next 15 years of my retirement not be good. I plan on living to 125 It doesn't say we're not to have any money. It doesn't say we can earn righteousness or favor by being poor or by giving more than somebody else. All of these were common beliefs held in, our, in the church just in the last 40 years. We went from pastors got to be poor to pastors got to fly a jet. I think somewhere between the two is a healthy place. And again, I'm not picking on anyone 
from either camp. If a pastor has enough money that he has a jet, God bless him, I hope he'll take me on a ride. I love to fly. I told Tracy, if I wasn't a pastor, I'd want a job where I traveled all the time because I love it. To me, it's still magical to get in there and suddenly you're somewhere across the world a matter of hours later and I went there in comfort. But I also don't want to pick on those who still say pastors shouldn't have anything. That they should be, it'll keep them humble. It'll make them rely on God. The truth is, I think somewhere in the middle is probably a healthier perspective. They shouldn't be desperate for their food, but they shouldn't forget how the rest of the world lives. So how do I respond to this? This is me. I'm not saying it's you. I'm just going to tell you some of my thoughts. First off, I have to allow God to be in control. God has blessed me with things, and there is nothing that I'm lacking in this life. I tell people all the time, we're not rich, but we don't go hungry. There's nothing that we're lacking. I have to learn to allow God to really be in control. I have to trust him. I have to trust him enough that I willingly and freely give away some of the things that are the material things that I have. I've told you before, if you don't trust our church with your money. I, that's fine. We have a council, the, the board that makes the financial decisions. But if you're like, I don't know. First off, we have open books. We'll show you where we spend our money. Second off, one step further, if it's that you don't trust us, then find someone you trust and give your money there. I'm so not worried that we're going to go out of business because you withhold your X number of dollars that I'm going to say, I won't be controlled by the tithe, and here's how little I'll be controlled. I have no idea who gives what. I have no idea if you give $20,000 a year or $50 a year. I don't know. Because that's between you and God. My job is to present honestly what I believe God is telling us, and to do that with no strings attached, I'm allowed to do that because I don't know who gives what. I don't know who gives and doesn't because it's my job to trust him and to give and I got to trust other people that we're going to disperse that money in a way that has the greatest impact on the kingdom of God. Third thing I do is I have to learn to balance what really matters. What is eternal? What is temporal? It doesn't say have no fun in this lifetime. Nowhere in scripture does it say you shouldn't enjoy this. In fact, it almost says the opposite. It tells us that we have this one short life and he desires for us to have joy in this lifetime. He desires for us to do things that bring us life-giving things. He tells us, take care of your body because it's the only one you have. Does that sound like a person who doesn't want you to have fun? No, it sounds like a person who wants you to enjoy life. He wants us to enjoy life. And yet sometimes life can be a drain. So I have to learn how to balance the temporal with the eternal. And I have to trust him enough that I can release all those things that I'm clinging to, all those things I'm holding on to, because they don't really matter. Finally, learning to give generously. Again, this is so that my wealth never controls me. 
I give generously whenever I have opportunity to. So why does this matter in the world today? It becomes increasingly more difficult to live a righteous life in our world today. That's not just perception. If you uh, go back far enough, you can look and, and most people in the 50s and 60s, the majority of our nation, the whole idea of us being founded on, a, on Christian principles, the 50s and 60s were the height of church attendance in America. Some people think that it was back in the 1700s. It actually wasn't. The height of actual participation in the church in America actually ended in 1959 to 61, depending on which statistic you look at. And it's been on a steady decline since then. It's harder and harder and harder to live a righteous life because it was easier when everybody went to church. You may have gone to a different brand. You may have been Methodist and they were Lutheran and your neighbor, other neighbor was Baptist. But for the most part, you kind of had the same, you're on the same team. Now I don't know that we are. And it becomes increasingly difficult to live a life without worry in a world it seems like it's against us. And yet, Jesus walked through that as well. It becomes increasingly more difficult to not worry the more you have to worry about. I often will say, God, I want enough that I don't have to worry, but not so much that I have to worry again. I know that sounds like a silly prayer, but God, give me enough that I don't have to worry, but not so much that I have to start to worry again. So my final question today is this. Am I willing to give it all away if it gets in the way of following God? And that's a question that you have to answer for yourself. And again, I don't think God's called us to do that. But I think if we can come to the place where we're willing to give everything we have away if it gets in the way of following God, then we learn what really matters, what we really value, and how we can effectively learn what we can give away. God's looking at you and he's saying, I don't want you to worry because your one precious short life that you have here is meant and designed to be one of joy. And worry will rob you of joy quicker than anything else. Worry will rob you of your ability to feel joy because if I'm worried about this and I'm worried about that, I can't even live in the moment. I'm always worried about something else. My focus is always on something else. And he's looking and he's saying, I've come to you that you can have joy and that your joy may be full. I've come to you that you can have life and that you can have it abundantly. What a beautiful thing, life abundantly. Father God, I thank you for our church and I thank you that you've brought us together today. Help us to be a people who are not known by what we worry, but Father God, that we're known that we are known and marked as people who are of and about the kingdom and the business of the kingdom. As we walk in that, let us celebrate, let us live that, let us fully engage in who you are and what you have for us. Let us be known as a people, not who are oblivious to the problems of the world, but who can celebrate the freedom that you have given us to release that back to you and to walk in that in your name. Amen. Next week,
we're continuing on in our series, Underwhelmed, but we have a very special guest speaker. Um, I didn't realize that this guest had not actually spoken here at our church before. I thought that they had. And that guest is uh, Tracy. Why don't you give a little wave, Tracy? So, I'm in town, so I don't think you get to skip out and not be noticed. You'll be noticed. But Tracy will be speaking on worrying and just how to live a life that's underwhelmed instead of one that's overwhelmed. And then we'll wrap up the series two weeks from today. So, thanks for coming. We'll see you later.